I think what the last few years have revealed to us is that we are still worldly. The the world is in the church and um, this may be a simplification, but the church's response to COVID-19 has been in most cases almost entirely indistinguishable from the world's response to COVID-19. Welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. Uh, today I want to talk to you about something which on the face of it may not sound to you like it's about abortion, uh, but allow me to explain why I want to go here today. Uh, I want to talk about um, the church's response to COVID-19, to uh, the virus itself, uh, in particular the government's measures and uh, the general approach of mainstream society. And uh, over the years, uh, people have questioned me and asked, well, why why do you devote so much time to COVID-19, the vaccines and so on? Isn't this a distraction from uh, the main focus of your ministry, which, of course, is helping churches to respond to abortion? And it's a good question. It's a valid question. And really, the answer to that question is twofold. There are, there are two reasons, really, um, why I believe it's important uh, to address this, why it is relevant. Uh, the first is a sort of close technical answer, and the second is a broader one. So the first, uh, the kind of close technical answer is that all of the COVID-19 jabs that were and still are available in the UK have a very close connection with a fetal cell line uh, that was derived from a healthy baby girl who was deliberately killed through clinical abortion. Um, so uh, I'll link to places where you can find more detail on this. Um, but all the jabs that we have in the UK used a fetal cell line derived from an abortion. So there is this close connection with the intentional killing of babies uh, under the guise of healthcare. care. Um, so there's a very strong connection there. Um, but the, the second, the kind of broader reason is to do with with this, for me, it was really a gradual process of uh, realization. Uh, when, when I first was observing the response of the church to the uh, COVID-19 virus, to the way the government was responding and so on, uh, the honest truth is I, I was shocked. I was really surprised at just how it seemed to me unthinkingly, uncritically, the church went along with the flow of um, of the mainstream narrative and I, I was really surprised i expected more pushback i expected more discussion um more uh, dissenting opinions particularly from those who who would say they are uh, protestant they um they're non-conformist um but over time as i thought about this it occurred to me that this ought not to be surprising at all the reasons i believe underlying our weakness, and I'll be honest, I'll say it straight, I think our response to the COVID-19 years was weak and is still weak. 
Uh, and the, the reasons underlying that weakness, I've come to believe, are largely the same reasons that underlie our response or lack thereof to the genocide of babies that we call abortion. So given that the UK church has been acting for decades as though there is no genocide taking place, or as though God doesn't really care about child sacrifice, in a sense, it's not that surprising that our response to COVID-19 has been similarly tepid and lacking in any real prophetic edge. So that's the broader, deeper reason, if you like, uh, for why I think it's important that we engage with the church's response to COVID-19, because underneath that, we're going to find um, the heart affections and the ways of thinking, uh, the structures and attitudes and so on that really dictate our behaviour and responses in all sorts of situations, not the least uh, the genocide that we call abortion. So I think there's a very strong connection here. And uh, if we can correctly perceive what drove the church's behaviour and continues to drive the church's behaviour with regard to COVID-19 and the government's measures, then perhaps we will be better placed to tackle the things that are really holding back the church when it comes to abortion. Because increasingly, I keep coming back to this, the church's problem with abortion isn't really to do with abortion. In a sense, more fundamentally, there are these underlying issues of the heart and the way we think as the church. And our response to abortion is just one symptom of that. So if we're going to get anywhere, of course, ultimately, it's the Lord's work. We need uh, the Holy Spirit to bring true repentance and reformation leading to revival. Um, but if we're going to make any progress uh, on the issue of abortion, then we're going to have to tackle some of these root issues. So why in particular today? Why am I talking about this? Well, tomorrow, uh, or in fact, I believe uh, when this podcast goes out today, uh, I tend to record on a Monday, goes out on a Tuesday. So today, if you're watching this, um, Affinity uh, is putting on an online event uh, looking at COVID-19 and the response of the church. Now, Affinity is a grouping of gospel churches and other Christian ministries. Um, really grateful to the Lord for them. Um, I love what they stand for. And uh, Graham Nichols, who uh, leads Affinity, I don't know the man personally. Well, we've had some interactions uh, via email and so on. I've read things that he's written. Um, by all accounts, uh, a really lovely godly, humble guy, a sincere guy. He strikes me as someone who really thinks things through and uh, reflects on things, is open to critique and um, and all credit to him because he's uh, opened up a forum again for discussion around this area where almost no one else has been doing that. So uh, a number of months ago, this is, I guess, two years ago, I forget exactly when, Affinity put on a forum online for people to talk about the church's response to lockdown. Now, um, again, I'll put a link here if I can find it for when that was. And again, all credit to Affinity for doing that. Um, but for me, it was bittersweet because it seemed very late in time for the church to be getting together and talking about these things um, because so much had already um, happened. Uh, but all credit to Affinity for doing that back then, gathering people together and having that debate, that discussion and all credit to Affinity um, for doing it um, now, uh, for, for prompting a review. Uh, so just as the government has been 
um, conducting this inquiry. Don't get me into that, um, the framing of that that inquiry. Um, but uh, Affinity have seen in that a sort of a prompt uh, that we ought to be doing the same thing as the church. And I wholeheartedly agree. We do need to be doing the same thing because apart from anything else, there's been precious little reflection on the part of the church in terms of all that's gone down and how we've responded. So I'm grateful to the Lord that um, Affinity are doing this. Um, I want to share with you just a, a paragraph um, that a friend, a couple of friends of mine wrote to me and to some other people, just thinking through really the state of the church and the health of the church. Um, this um, general message, uh, I'm just going to read you one small part of it, but the, the general message may well uh, evolve into uh, some kind of open letter to the church. But something struck me, and this is um, a couple of weeks ago, something just struck me about uh, what I thought was a, a very succinct and accurate assessment of how the church has been uh, in regard to COVID-19. So I just wanted to share this um, with you. So it says this, we are firm in our belief that the recent pandemic was, amongst other things, a compassionate attempt by a merciful God to wake up his church, both by closing our church doors to get our attention and by highlighting our sinful attitudes, such as our fear, our love of this world and our lack of discernment. We don't believe the church was ready before the pandemic, responded rightly when going through it or has learned its lessons since. The church had an opportunity to recognise the pandemic as a message from the Lord and to repent, but instead was determined to carry on and build back better. The Lord may therefore have to bring a mightier shaking upon us, and we are concerned that the church isn't prepared for this. Now, there's a lot that could be said on all of that, and there's a lot more that could be said besides, but the point I just wanted to draw out there was that, for me, a very succinct uh, summary of what's gone on here. We don't believe the church was ready before the pandemic, responded rightly when going through it, or has learned its lessons from it since. Uh, and all that to say, again, all credit and thanks to Affinity and Graham Nichols for at least addressing one of those problems that have been listed there. Uh, and in a sense, the primary problem, the one that needs to be addressed first, which is, can we at least talk about this? Can we reflect on it? Can we examine ourselves and critique one another, um, show each other the uh, planks in our own eyes, the specks in our own eyes, or whichever way around it might turn out to be, uh, and help each other to see those specks and planks so that so that we are in a position to uh, to assess, well, where did we hear right? Where did we not even try and listen at all? What's God saying now? And, and how do we need to prepare for whatever's next? Um, whether it's another pandemic or whatever it might be, um, I would not be surprised if there is a greater shaking uh, to come. And are we ready for it? And my simple answer would have to be at this stage, well, no, we, because we've not even begun to really learn from what's happened so far. Uh, and I don't think we responded rightly then. So all that to say, grateful that Affinity is seeking to tackle at least that, uh, chronologically speaking, primary issue of we need to stop and reflect, learn, and so on. Now, um, I wanted to put something out there about these things uh, ahead of the event uh, this afternoon. Um, sadly, uh, I can't tune in myself and be involved. Uh, there's a kind of open invitation for people to to engage, ask questions and so on. Unfortunately, I've got a meeting all day uh, today. As I say, I was recording this yesterday. Um, so I can't uh, participate, sadly. Um, but I wanted to put 
put this out there um, ahead of the event in hopes that some people might uh, listen to this. Um, I've also put out in written form um, and that some questions and concerns could perhaps be aired during this event. Um, and perhaps these might form some discussion points. So I wanted to take this opportunity really to um, really to reiterate some of the concerns I've shared over the last two or three years in terms of the church's response. Uh, also to chuck in another uh, one or two new ones and uh, and really see if um, this might spark some discussion uh, amongst those who might participate tomorrow or in the ongoing discussions that no doubt um, will will continue to flow from, to, from I keep saying uh, tomorrow, it's today now, isn't it? So um, I'm not going to have time to develop any of these into uh, particularly substantial arguments here, but rather I just want to flag different areas, questions, issues um, that I believe deserve deeper consideration. Um, if I were to try and summarise everything though into a word, I think what the last few years have revealed to us is that we are still worldly. The The world is in the church and um, this may be a simplification, but the church's response to COVID-19 has been, in most cases, almost entirely indistinguishable from the world's response to COVID-19. By and large, we've not been salty and light. We've been much the same. Now, overlap is to be expected. Sometimes that's right. Uh, but I think we've really lacked the discernment uh, that's been needed, that was required to offer a truly faithful uh, and distinctive response. So let me just give you a few um, headings here and uh, some questions or, or, or talking points that I think uh, deserve a bit of airtime. So firstly, idolatry. I believe the last few years have shown us that we share, in large part, many of the same idols um, that our wider culture uh, shares. Uh, we idolize the state. We look to the government uh, to provide at some level our salvation, our security. Uh, we we um, are much like those who, who look down to Egypt for their security, um, who put their trust in, in horses and, and in princes. Um, and uh, as well as that, that trust, that hope in their strength, uh, there's also, I think, been quite a naive um, even willfully naive insistence on the inherent goodness of the government. And so the number of times I heard church leaders say, well, the government's just trying to do its best in a tricky situation. Uh, we've got to trust their motives. It's conspiratorial to suppose they would ever want anything other than the very best for their own people. Um, and this is from people who say they believe in original sin and total depravity. Um, but what's going on there is that those theological beliefs are really being put to one side. And functionally, we act as though uh, the government's every motive and attitude can be can be trusted. And, and that's uh, quite astonishing when we look back now and we see that um, the great drivers of so much of the government's response, Boris Johnson, um, Hancock, uh, these people have really fallen from grace. They didn't even believe their own rules. Um, and they, uh, of course, their personal lives leave a huge amount to be desired, as do all of us, but um, really there's evidence for anyone with uh, eyes to see. These people were not well-meaning. Uh, they were not honest. 
they were not sincere there was no integrity um, and yet we uh, told one another they're just trying to do the right thing so there's a real kind of idolatry of, of the state and as Joe Boot has said um, the state is really just man enlarged it's fear of man it's idolatry of man uh, when man gets together in an organized way um, and it's a very common idol uh, for us to have and indeed it's it's possibly the one of the chief idols that that you get and secular humanism really finds itself often uh, focused on that idol of the idol of the state so we've we've idolized the state we've idolized the experts so-called um particularly scientists um scientists uh form as, as sort of the, the great high priesthood in some ways of secular humanism they're the they're the experts they're the the people who bring us to that utopia um that we so desire um and of course when it came to something like a, a virus that no one really understood and hugely uh, speculative mass social experiments such as uh, national lockdowns and, um, and and vaccines that were still in their trial phase uh, even the question of what it means to be an expert is a question worth asking how can you be an expert on predicting the future with all sorts of unknowns um, and uncharted territories nevertheless we we idolized these experts we listened to them when they showed us graphs we uh, reacted as if they were gospel truth so we idolize the experts um, and that's very much in the church we'll come back to that in a minute uh, we idolize the nhs the healthcare workers and in a sense that's just um an outworking of our idolatry of health and safety and life on this earth uh, in many ways we acted as though things of eternity were less important and um, health and safety trumped all other concerns. We idolized what people thought of us. Uh, we allowed uh, reputation and uh, public opinion to define for us really what right and wrong were, what good and bad were, and what it meant to love our neighbor. I'll come back to that in a second as well. And I think we certainly idolized the vaccine as our way out of this. Now, I won't go into any of these things in more detail here, but I will link some articles where I have done that. But just coming back to this event that's happening uh, this afternoon, and um, I really don't want to be uh, pedantic or ungenerous here, but I think it's just worth picking up on a little detail uh, because I, I believe it is telling. Um, on the uh, introduction to the event on, on Affinity's website, uh, it makes the point that it's hosted from the offices of the Christian Medical Fellowship in London, leveraging their medical expertise now as i say i i believe graham uh, is a humble man and won't mind uh, me raising this point um but i i think there is a glimmer here of the way in which we're overawed by the so-called expertise um class the, the 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 medical establishment um and i've really come across this issue uh, in the church anecdotally when it comes to issues like abortion um, it's often assumed that the doctors um, are the experts in the congregation when it comes to an issue like abortion. Now, of course, um, when it comes to the medical field itself, when it comes to the science and the techniques and, and so on, of course, they know more than the rest of us. Um, that's not in question. The problem is when we automatically therefore assume that they have more moral clarity or theological clarity or ecclesiological clarity than the rest of us. Now, they may have those um, forms of wisdom and knowledge as well, or they may not. But just anecdotally, uh, make of this what you will. But I have found, as I've gone from church to church, 
teaching about abortion and I've, I've been in, I don't know, 60, 70, uh, 75, I'd, I'd, I've lost count churches now. Um, it is often the doctors that I find most resistant to a clear pro-life message. That's my experience. Now, perhaps that's a, a, a subject for discussion another day. But this assumption that because someone has medical expertise, they will therefore have more moral clarity than the rest of us. It shows that we have, I believe, fallen for one of the idolatries of the day, worship of the experts. Uh, but it also shows that we've we've miscategorized really what are moral issues. We've allowed moral issues to be turned into medical issues, which of course is one of the great tricks of the abortion industry. They've said this should be regulated just like any other medical process. Uh, it shouldn't be in the criminal law framework. Uh, and of course, what's going on there is a sleight of hand whereby um, killing, an act of violence against innocent children is being rebranded as healthcare. And of course, one of the things that happens as a result of that is the rest of us are told to stay out of it because what's it got to do with you? This is just between a woman and her doctor. And many of us agree to that settlement, even within the church. And so we think, well, if I'm not a doctor, who am I to comment? And, uh, and many perhaps well-meaning people have hidden behind that. Um, I don't want to call it an excuse because it may be sincerely meant, but a reason to stay out of the debate. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. Uh, I'm not a, um, a virologist. I'm not a doctor. Well, those things may be true. But what's fundamentally at stake here, of course, it involves the facts. But what's fundamentally at stake here are moral issues, theological issues, and ecclesiological issues. Um, one example being, is it right to cease collective, gathered public worship and the sacraments for months on end? Um, because the experts say so, or even because the government says so, whether that's law or guidelines, uh, that's not fundamentally a medical question. So there is an assumption, there is a, a sort of habit, an attitude within the church that when it comes to issues like abortion and also COVID-19 and our responses to them, it's the doctors and the scientists who are the experts. And I think that can really cause all sorts of uh, problems. So idolatry needs to be questioned there. Um, now, in, in sort of tandem there with, with the idolatry, I think we have a whole world of falsehood. So just as we've allowed these um, counterfeit idols to uh, be accommodated uh, within the church, so we've allowed these uh, idols to dictate counterfeit realities or counterfeit moralities. We've allowed these uh, authorities to teach us what is good, what is right, uh, what love is, what it means to worship God, how we should do that, in particular in gathered worship together. And uh, all of this over and against what scripture clearly says and, and, and an assessment of the facts. So we largely believed and followed the mainstream narrative. We did that somewhat uncritically, I would say. So let me just give you one example. Um, the media, together with the government, strongly asserted, and this was without any evidence, okay, no empirical evidence. They strongly asserted that the jabs would prevent or significantly reduce transmission. And on the back of that claim, they uh, strongly encouraged, in some cases coerced, people to get the jab. 
And they also made out, therefore, that the spread of the virus was thanks to the unvaccinated. Um, so so-called anti-vaxxers were um, demonized or at the very least treated with suspicion. They're accused of being selfish. Uh, the spread of the virus was all their fault. Now, too many church leaders simply jumped on board with this narrative. They parroted it and slapped Bible verses on top of it. This is how we love our neighbor, it was claimed. It's ever so clear for anyone wanting to look into it. This message originated with the world and then it was pushed through the church and was sprayed with a bit of biblical perfume on its way through. And this simply is not good enough. This is not what the church is here for. Just to repeat the message of the world, uh, but repackage it in Christianese. Too many Christian leaders said, this is how we love our neighbor. Get the vaccine, get the jab. And of course, the implication, therefore, and sometimes this was explicitly made, was if you don't get the jab, you don't love your neighbor. You're a bad person. You only care about yourself. Now, the thing is, we know today, we know without doubt, the jabs do not prevent transmission. And, and it's as if no one's, it's like water off a duck's back. No one stopped to say, oh, hang on, we got that one really wrong, didn't we? We pressurized people to get the, va the, the, the vaccine, the jab. We told people this is the way to love your neighbor, all on the, on the strength of this assertion that it stops transmission or, or radically reduces transmission. And it turns out that premise is entirely false. It doesn't do that. Therefore, getting the vaccine does nothing for your neighbor. It does no good for your neighbor. At best, it's a waste of time. It's shameful that people were made to feel uh, pressurized into getting a vaccine they didn't want because they were uh, gaslighted into thinking that uh, they didn't care about other people if they remained unvaccinated. It's shameful that care workers were forced out of their jobs, thousands of them, because they refused the vaccine. That's shameful. And it's shameful that the church did not stand up and speak up for those innocent people. What about loving those neighbors? Why did we not care about them? It's shameful that happened. It's shameful that we allowed that to happen. Where was our prophetic voice? The whole premise was, was bogus. These, these jabs didn't prevent or radically reduce transmission. We know that now, but friends, we knew that then also, if only we were willing to look at the facts and say it as it is. The manufacturers of the jabs themselves, you can look this up, dated articles, the manufacturers themselves said they didn't know if it would prevent transmission or not. And yet we chose to believe the media narrative and the government's assertion that, that the jabs would prevent transmission. Why did we go along with that narrative when the facts themselves did not substantiate that claim? But instead of making up our own minds, instead of having the courage to do that, instead of even being able to ask those questions and think about it out loud, uh, we were swept along the currents of the mainstream. And, and together with that, um, even talking about these things was really discouraged. There was a great deal of silencing and censorship. That's another heading I want to, to look at with you, silencing and censorship. It was very difficult for people who had a, a dissenting opinion to have their voice heard within the church. Uh, many congregations uh, suppressed discussion about this. Those who were anti-lockdown or deemed anti-vax, and by the way, most of these people, if not all of them, had 
no objections to vaccines in general, but they did have objections to this particular jab, and there are reasons for that. But such people were often construed as troublemakers, and um, and the, the arena was not given for, for these discussions. Um, in line with the mainstream narrative, they were often seen as selfish. They uh, Their motives were called into question. And uh, in one example, uh, John Stevens labelled those who decided to follow the Bible's directions for public worship rather than the government's guidelines. And that's when they were guidelines, advice, not law. So there were people who decided they would follow what the Bible said we should do in public worship rather than what the government suggested. Uh, but John Stevens labelled such people who went with the Bible rather than the government's advice as petulant teenagers, this is a direct quote, using our freedom for libertarian self-indulgence rather than exercising wise, voluntary self-restraint for the common good. Isn't that lovely? So. People like me were apparently petulant teenagers using freedom for libertarian self-indulgence. We're just selfish people. We just don't care about anyone. And that's why we want to sing songs of worship, uh, share the breaking of bread, and, um, and, and be within six feet of other human beings. But this is the kind of demonization which started in uh, the wider world, in the mainstream narrative, through the government's messaging but the church imbibed it. And what that did was it shut down discussion. It shut down the opportunity for reflection and for um, for even getting to a point where we might be able to discern together what the Lord is saying and how we should be responding. Because from the off, um, the, the dissenters have been uh, demonized. So um, censorship and uh, silencing, but there's also, and this is where um, it connects most directly really with our response to abortion, is all of this is all the more troubling when we consider the very close relationship these jabs have with child sacrifice and organ harvesting from babies killed through child sacrifice. Again, we've gone into this in a lot of detail elsewhere, so I won't go into any more detail here. But again, what happened to applying the love your neighbor directive to the helpless babies who are dismembered alive, and some of them, uh, their organs taken from them whilst they're still, that whilst their hearts are still beating for the freshness of those organs, um, how are we so unmoved by the plight of the unborn, including those whose organs are harvested for vaccines and other things for the benefit, so-called, of adults? Why are we so unmoved by their plight, and yet we're willing to move heaven and earth? to love our neighbours, so long as the form of that love means wearing a face mask, getting a jab, and not going anywhere near them. What's really driving us? Is it really love for neighbour, or is there something else going on? Another heading, uh, if you will, is insanity. I think the church really displayed quite a, an alarming degree of insanity uh, during this whole period of history, we showed ourselves willing to go along with things that simply do not make sense. Not only are they unsubstantiated by the facts, not only are they hugely speculative, but sometimes uh, the the inherent self-contradiction of the me measures was just laughable. And we should have been laughing at them rather than taking them seriously. The idea that you can walk a certain number of steps uh, with a mask on 
and then you take it off to order something in a, a cafe and then you put the mask back on and walk to your table and then you take the mask off again in a highly crowded area. The idea that this mask on mask off thing is doing any good for anyone is simply laughable uh, and yet we took it so seriously. Less of a problem when it's in a cafe although still laughable but in uh, an act of public worship on the Lord's Day in uh, churches we have people taking masks on and off, on and off during a service, taking masks off uh, to sing and then putting them back on again even though just a few months earlier we were told that singing was one of the most dangerous things we could possibly do um, and then taking the mask off again so that we can have coffee and talk to the people face to face that we had previously been standing just alongside. Now it, it, is, it simply flies in the face of logic, of the facts, of, of common sense and the church is called to be a pillar of the truth. Now of course fundamentally and most importantly that's about the truth of the gospel but if we can't even uh, stay faithful to basic common sense and call things out as ridiculous and self-contradictory when they are, then really what are we doing to adorn the gospel and show our ability to tell the truth and have the courage to tell the truth when we're running around saying the emperor has clothes on when he clearly doesn't. This kind of insanity is not befitting for um, the pillar of truth that is the church and with the sound mind that we have been given in Christ. So insanity really, although more accurately perhaps it's not insanity, perhaps we all knew deep down it was ridiculous. Indeed you'd hear people talk about how ridiculous it is and yet there was still this willingness to go along with it. So perhaps it's not a lack of brains but a lack of courage. Uh, and as C.S. Lewis said, courage is really um, the, the height of every virtue because if we don't have the courage uh, when it's tested, if we don't have the courage to stay true to what is right, uh, to, to carry on loving when it's hard, uh, to hold on to our confession uh, when uh, we face persecution for it, or really all of those virtues um, fall away. Courage is kind of the testing point for all of them. So perhaps really it was a lack of courage because we already knew it was ridiculous. And so we just simply went along with it rather than showing ourselves to be committed to truth in all its forms, wherever we find it. Finally, I think it's important to review at this stage and hindsight is of course a blessing, but we didn't need hindsight to know most of this. It was um, entirely predictable. The measures I would say quite clearly the government measures, particularly jabs and lockdown, but also paying people uh, to stay at home and do nothing um, and so on. The net effect of these measures has been so vastly negative. Uh, when we look around ourselves um, and we consider the uh, financial catastrophe, the towering debt, when we consider the ongoing excess deaths that are non-COVID deaths, when we consider um, the mental health of the nation, including suicides, when we think about the educational and social retardation uh, of in particular children and young people, but many of us, when we consider the widespread isolation that people have not only been subjected to, but it's become a new way of living for many people. Uh, we, we, we got reconditioned to live more isolated lives, when we consider the um, backlog of the NHS, uh, the waiting lists, the number of cancer patients who have not been diagnosed or treated, um, one has to admit, I think, one has to admit the overall 
uh, net effect has been negative, even just purely in terms of health and safety, even just in terms of people's physical health and their life here on earth, the effect has been negative. The damage has been catastrophic. And of course, we're only just beginning to see the effects of that. Uh, these effects will roll on for many years to come. And that's before we we even consider um, the already very low um, infection fatality rate of COVID-19. The fact that it only ever killed a very small, uh, it was less than 1% uh, of those who um, contracted it. Many of those were already of the average age of death in the UK anyway. Many had underlying conditions, all of that kind of thing. Um, and that's before, again, we even uh, go into the question of vaccine harms. And that's opening a can of worms that I haven't got time to um, deal with in this episode. Um, but even if we don't believe the vaccine ever harmed anyone, you've still got to consider the catastrophic effects of all the measures. The starting point of a virus that had a, an IFR of below 1%. And then we have to consider, at the very least, the relative ineffectiveness of the jabs and of lockdowns to prevent the spread of the virus. Everyone still got it, right? Everyone still got it. And the jabbed still got it. They still got ill with it, many of them, and they still passed it on. Even if we were to concede that some lives were saved by it, even if we were to concede a great many lives were saved by it, we still have to concede the cost has been astronomical and the efficacy of the measures overall questionable. Now, you might believe, uh, and this is where we, we can't avoid getting into the facts, you might believe that jabs and lockdowns did save a great deal of lives, and you might hold that these could be reasonably weighed up against um, the monumental costs, which we're just beginning to see, don't forget. We're only beginning to see them, including on people's physical health and lives here on Earth. Um, even if we were to concede all of that, uh, we still have to ask, uh, in a sense, a more conservative question. Okay, let's let's grant that for sake of argument. If we were willing to go to such great lengths to protect our neighbours from this virus with an IFR of below 1%, why are we so unwilling to do almost anything in the face of the baby genocide, which takes a quarter of a million babies' lives in the UK every year. If it's all about love your neighbour, why do we not lift a finger for these babies? More babies are being killed every year. Every year. Worldwide, more babies are being killed every year than COVID-19 ever killed. Where's the uproar? Where is the outcry for these lives? Where are the church leaders lining up to do promotional videos to say how we need to love our neighbour and do something for these babies? Now, this isn't so much, but my point here is not to point the finger really at the government, although there's a time and a place for that, and I'm happy to do that, but at ourselves. The question is, why did we play along with all this? Why, when so much of this was so entirely predictable, we, we took part in these mass experiments. We thought, well, let's see what happens when you lock down an entire nation for weeks on end, when you don't let them have sunlight 
for more than an hour a day. Let's see what happens. Well, unsurprisingly, it's been catastrophic. And anyone with common sense could have seen at least some of those effects. Why didn't we speak out? Why didn't we have the courage to say the emperor has no clothes on when necessary? We should have been a prophetic voice against all this madness. Well, as I say, I only want to flag some issues rather than um, argue them in any substantial way. Um, I hope that some of these might be picked up uh, later today in uh, the online event uh, hosted by Affinity. And again, I want to thank Affinity and commend them for, for doing that. And uh, I will be following with interest uh, what comes out of the discussions today. And I hope that they will be the beginning rather than the end of an ongoing review and reflection on how the church has responded to all of this. And I pray, and I sincerely mean this, I pray that the Lord will guide the discussions taking place today. I pray that he will bring clarity. I pray that, pray that he will bring conviction where needed and repentance, uh, because I believe that what's been shown over the last few years is that the church is gravely in need of repenting, of uh, being cleansed of worldliness and we need to come back to the fear of the Lord and uh, revering, praising his word. Well, thank you for listening. And uh, if, if you're able to uh, tune in this afternoon to Affinity's event, um, I do want to encourage you to do that. You should find a link in the description below. And uh, let's pray that uh, this will be a fruitful time for God's people. Thank you.